morning. I ask you to open up your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 1. Hebrews 1, and I'll read chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. We'll pray and we'll ask the Lord to guide our time this morning. Hebrews 1, 1 through 4. Long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. This is God's word. Let's pray. Our good and gracious God, our Heavenly Father, we are firstly and foremostly thankful for your grace to us this morning and allowing us to have a new day in which indeed your mercies are renewed, but Lord, in gathering us together as your people, your church, to worship you and to focus our hearts and minds upon what you've done for us in and through your Son, Jesus Christ. Lord, we also want to pray for Thomas Hudson. We're thankful for the calling that you've had on his life and the desire that he has to preach your gospel and to preach it in Washington, D.C. Lord, we ask that you would bless him and his efforts as he endeavors to plant a church, Pillar D.C., with their focus towards the Marines and the Marine Corps, but, Lord, to all in D.C., as we've heard this morning. Father, we pray for their families, for Thomas and Sean and their wives and their children, and, Lord, that you would... Keep them healthy and keep them safe. Lord, use them to your glory. Father, we pray for a sustained ministry and the giving of the gospel to those who are in D.C. And Lord, that that you would use them and and their work and and preaching your word to transform the entire city of Washington, D.C. so that they might know and exalt in the name and fame of Jesus Christ. Lord, we also want to pray for Uh, the study that is about to go on when sinners say, I do. We pray for those who are married, that you, Lord, would strengthen and and equip those couples here to give glory to you, O God, as they grow in love to one another and in sanctification, the the sanctification that does come through marriage, that they too would grow in love to you. And Father, we pray that you would equip us now. Help us to rightly know you and be drawn near to you as we meditate and hear your word. Father, we are sheep in need of your guidance. Lord, we are prone to wander. And may you this morning convict us of sin, but encourage us in faithfulness. Lord, feed us as we so desperately need your feeding. And apply your word by your spirit to our hearts. We pray these things in Jesus Christ. It may, may not be surprising to you that many today who call themselves Christians 
are in fact not very Christian. That is, the person and and the life and and the work of Jesus Christ doesn't really factor in all that much in, in their own lives. They carry the name Christian, but they sadly, dangerously, have missed Christ altogether. Many times, entire churches who claim to be Christian are so only in name. The religious rituals may be there, whether they're formal or informal, ancient or modern. But the person and work of Jesus Christ is noticeably missing. Who he claimed to be is embarrassing to them. What he's accomplished on the cross is offensive to them. Many times it's easy to notice, but all too often there's a, there's a subtlety to their life and practice which masks and, and hides the heart of the problem. In many churches today, they're, they're, they're subtly uh, hiding what they really believe. It's hard to spot. They may outwardly and very vocally proclaim the gospel, confess their belief in Jesus, but as one watches for a little bit and, and maybe engages with them a bit, you begin to see some things that are backwards. Instead of Christ being the point and purpose of all that they do, in a subtle way, Christ is used to serve them and their purposes and what they want to do. And instead of Christ being the all-consuming focus of their joy and, and adoration, Christ and his gospel is used to serve the people in their other joys and their other delights. Instead of every sermon focusing and being grounded in Jesus Christ, the person of whom all scripture points to, every sermon is instead used to give five points on, on how to better raise your children, three ways to have a healthier marriage, or seven ways to be a better you so that you can live your best life now. Sadly, these kinds of things are going on all over the place. And the God of self, the idol of where you are the most important person to be concerned with, has hijacked many churches and hijacked the language of the gospel in order to serve up a religion just, that just makes us feel good. This isn't really a new phenomenon, though, is it? The first century church dealt with this same kind of thing all the time. Some notable examples may be Ananias and Sapphira of Acts chapter 5. They used the gospel and the church in order to better their position in society, make a little bit more money. They lied and, and pretended to be very spiritual and religious, when all the while, everything they did, they did it for themselves. You can see what happened to them if you read Acts 5. Another notable example may be the crowds that followed Jesus after he fed the 5,000, John chapter 6. It even says that this crowd went after Jesus and they wanted to make him king. Surely that's a good and godly thing. Well, Jesus instantly puts them to shame and turns them away. Because he says that they only wanted to make him king because they ate their fill of the bread which he had given them earlier. In other words, Jesus refuses their worship to him because their worship is really selfishly motivated. They only honor him as king because of what he can do for them. And Jesus will have none of it. And sadly, too many today are only honoring Jesus because of what he can do for them. It's a man-centered theology, self-centered practice which has ravaged God's people from day one. Well, the passage that we're looking at this morning, in my view, is, is one of the brightest passages to help steer clear of this man-centered problem. No doubt all the Bible is, is concerned with us focusing all our attention on God and God alone. Uh, but this passage at the beginning of Hebrews is one of those texts that just 
overflows with so much gracious, Christ-centered truth that it beckons us with power to fixate our hearts on Jesus Christ. Make much of him. He is irresistible in this passage. Now, the book of Hebrews is really dealing with this problem I've laid out here. Uh, What has really made the problem pronounced to the original hearers of this book of Hebrews is that the people this author is writing to, they've been suffering under persecution. They're Christians, and they're suffering for being Christian. Today, it's really not the case, is it? Uh, It's not really all that bad to call yourself a Christian and and to go to church. Western civilization for the past 2,000 years has made it somewhat okay to be here this morning. We're not really in that much danger for coming here, at least not yet. But that wasn't the case for the Christians to whom Hebrews was written to. And the danger was, the temptation for them really, was to give up. These Christians were tempted to go back to being Jews who who worshipped God under the old Mosaic covenant. The violent persecution they were enduring was making many of them think, this isn't worth it. Life was a lot easier when I was back in the synagogue and, and had to offer my lamb as a sacrifice to God. If this suffering and persecution keeps up, I'm afraid I'm going to have to give up this whole Christianity thing. It wasn't what I thought it was going to be. And so what was going on was that their becoming Christians also meant that their lives were becoming a lot more difficult. And so the writer of Hebrews wants to encourage them. He wants to make sure that their becoming a Christian is a real and enduring thing, that, that they finish their race well. And the way he does that is by giving them this book. This book of Hebrews is really a sermon which he knows is fully Christ-centered. He wants to fix their eyes on Jesus Christ and have them be amazed at who he is. You see, he doesn't give them pointers on on how to to make their lives better. There's none of that there. He he knows that the dangers for them is to make their faith a kind of self-centered thing, all about them, all about how they feel. And he knows that a self-centered faith is not an enduring faith. It will fail when life gets tough. Here the author fully admits, we should probably fully admit that life is hard and it's probably going to get harder. And so he's convinced that the only thing that will ensure that their faith is a real faith and and that they don't wander from the gospel and give up on Christ is by giving them a full display of the beauty and glory of Jesus Christ. The author's aim in preaching was not mainly to help his hearers feel treasured, but to help his hearers treasure Jesus Christ. So this morning, as we look at these first four verses, my prayer, too, is that we would all come away more in love with the person of Jesus Christ. For it's only in him, having our hearts and minds centered on him, that we, too, can endure and escape the danger of of being self-centered, man-centered Christians. Well, the passage before us is actually wonderfully poetic. Uh, Many people have thought it was actually part of an early church hymn that was perhaps sung by Christians. Uh, One of the reasons people think this is because of how the verses are structured. Uh, It's written in what's known as a a chiasm. That's a fancy word for meaning that this is just a beautiful mirror image of itself. So so the first part, verses 1 and 2, mirror and and reflect the last part, verse 4. And and as you work your way in, each part serves as a a parallel image until you, you get to the middle, the heart of it which climaxes on the point of what the passage is all about. 
what I want to do this morning is, is, is focus on that heart of the passage, which is that Jesus Christ is God, the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature, and, and work outward in and, and see how all this passage focuses and, and climaxes in that truth. Well, the first thing we really want to notice about this passage, what the author wants us to see is that Jesus Christ is the prophet of God. Prophets were those people in the Old Testament who God spoke through, he he revealed himself through, and what we're being told is that God has ultimately revealed himself in the superior prophet, Jesus Christ. Look at verse 1. It starts off by telling us that long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke. God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. Now, this is a massive truth, not least of which is the truth that simply God spoke. We can skim over those two words that God spoke and and not think much at all about it, but those two words really are the driving action of this entire text. God has spoken. Our God, the God who has created all that is, is a speaking God who communicates himself to others. In fact, we see at the beginning of the Bible, right, in Genesis 1, that the way in which God has created everything is by speaking. God said, let there be light. And the sun was made and light came into existence. God said, let the earth be, and and the earth came into existence. God spoke, and the oceans were formed. God spoke, and all the animals and, and all that flies in the air and swims in the sea came to be like that. God spoke. And he created man like that. The truth is, is that that God's word from the beginning of the Bible is described to us as powerful. Uh, It accomplishes things. It, It creates galaxies like that. God's word does not return void. And then we see wonderfully that God also speaks communicatively to his creatures. You see that he speaks to Adam and Eve. And he, he gives them his word. He reveals his will and desire to them. He gives them his words to live by and trust him. And even after they doubt and disbelieve in what God has said to do and and sin and and cast everyone into the fall, amazingly in grace, God continues to speak to his people. God doesn't give them the silent treatment, as it were, but instead he gives them a promise, a promise of a future Savior to come. And as you continue reading your Old Testament, uh, you see that God continues to speak. He speaks in many ways, sometimes through dreams, sometimes in visions. Sometimes he, he directly speaks, like he did to Moses in the burning bush. He spoke it many times. He spoke to Abram while he was in Ur and revealed to him that he'd make a mighty nation out of him. He spoke to Moses and gave Moses his law. God spoke to men like Joshua and, and the prophet Samuel. God spoke to David. And to Solomon, God spoke through the prophets like Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel. At many times and in many ways, God has spoken. And as you read this this inscripturated revelation of God's word, you see that God has spoken to all these people during all these different times. And he was saying, really, the same message throughout. That there's someone important coming who's going to save a lot of people. And you know... God didn't have to speak, right? He has. 
He's revealed his will perfectly through the prophets, which we've got recorded for us here in the Bible, just as Paul wrote to Timothy that all Scripture is breathed out by God. But it is God's grace that he's not left us in the dark. We can know him. We can worship him rightly because of what he's spoken. We don't have to guess what it is that God wants from us. We don't have to guess what it is that God's doing in our lives. He has fully spoken to us. But the point that the author is making here in Hebrews 1 and 2 is that God has spoken finally and most clearly in his Son. That's what the beginning of verse 2 tells us, that in these last days he has spoken by his Son. In other words, everything that God had spoken before in the Old Testament, long ago and many times in many ways, was in a sense incomplete. It, it was pointing to something better. It was God's word, and, and yes, it was without error. But in and of itself, the Old Testament was anticipating a more perfect revelation of God. And here we see that that revelation came in his son, Jesus Christ. That's essentially what verse 4 is getting at as well. Look down at verse 4, which is the parallel verse to 1 and 2. And it's highlighting there that, that the superiority of the son over that of the angels. Why is that? Well, throughout the Old Testament, the angels actually played a crucial role in the administration of God's word. It was many times through them that God gave his word to Israel and revealed his will. Paul tells us in Galatians 3.19 that the law of God came through the angels. Even here in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 2, God is said to have revealed his will and his word by the angels. And the point Hebrews is making here is that God has revealed himself in an even better way than the angels in his son. Jesus Christ is the final word from God, the, the full revelation of who God is. God used to in many different ways and in many different times reveal himself, but now in these last days, he has revealed himself fully, finally, in Jesus Christ, his son. And this is why Jesus is the fullest and, and better and perfect prophet. The revelation of himself is the fullest expression of God's word here on earth. This is exactly why the Gospel of John begins with those words we all know so well, that in the beginning was the word, the word was with God, the word was God, and the word became flesh and and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as the only son from the Father, and no one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side, but he has made him known. In fact, later in John, Jesus says this very thing when he tells his disciples that I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except by me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father. But from now on, you do know him and have seen him precisely because you have known and seen the Son. Friends, I hope this morning that this is something of an encouragement to you that there is never going to be a better or more superior revelation of God than the one that we have in his son, Jesus Christ. In a world that says that there are many different truths, there's many different ways to know and get at God, Hebrews tells us no. There's only one sure way to know God, and that is through his son. All of the Old Testament points to him and is about him, but now that Christ has come, we have the fullest revelation of God that could ever be had. Abraham longed to see what we see in Jesus. Moses only saw a glimpse of God's glory compared to what we see in Jesus. 
Friends, as we read our New Testaments and and read and get to know Jesus, we're peering in to the glory of God. Perhaps you've read in 2 Corinthians 3 where Paul tells us that whenever Moses was read, the, the Old Testament, a veil had rested over their hearts of unbelievers. But when one turns to the Lord, Jesus Christ, that veil is removed. And we all with unveiled faces... Beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image, the image of the Son from one degree of glory to another. Be encouraged, brothers and sisters. The word that the Lord gives us in Jesus Christ does not return void. It it changes us and, and prepares us for glory. Christ is the better and perfect prophet, the perfect word from God. Read about him. See him in your word. Know him. And be forever changed by him. Well, the second truth that the author of Hebrews wants us to see is that Jesus Christ is the better and perfect king. See here in verse 2. In these last days he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things. The son is being set forth here in relationship to the father, God. And, and God the father is said to have appointed the son to be heir that is in possession of and and ruler over all things. He has by nature of who he is inherited all creation. And as such, he rules over all creation as king. Now, it would be wrong and the height of folly, as many cults in the past have done, to conclude that there was a time when the son did not rule as king over all things. The biblical truth laid out for us is that the Son has always ruled over all things. The verse here makes that even clear. Verse 2 tells us that the Son has created the world. So that in a very real sense, the Son is rightly king and, and lord and ruler over all things precisely because the Son was the creator of all things. He made it all, and thus he owns it all. Abraham Kuyper has famously stated that there is not one square inch in all the domain of existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry out, that is mine. It's all his because he's king and creator over all. And the encouragement that the author of Hebrews will end up giving to those Christians as you read through the book, those who are suffering under persecution, is that since Jesus Christ, our great king, is heir to all things, well, so too we. We who are found in him and and persevere in him, uh, we will become heir of all things and join as co-heirs and and joint rulers with Christ. Or do you not know, saints, that we will one day judge the world and and we will judge angels? Friends, the gospel promises us that we who are in Christ, that we are children of God. and, And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him, in order that we also might be glorified with him. Do you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and as your King? Have you surrendered your entire life in subjection to him, allowing him to to lead you and, and use you in whatever way he pleases? At the heart of the Christ centered gospel is Jesus Christ as King. Either we submit to him now, giving him all that we have, and and know him in peace and in love? Or there will be one day in which the king will return, and he will forcefully make us submit to him, bending our knee, and we will know him then in fear 
and in dread and in shame. I plead with you, come to him now if you have not already, and know him as your loving king. Well, Hebrews has shown us that Jesus is the better prophet. He, he is the better and perfect king. And next, Hebrews shows us that Jesus is the better and perfect priest. Perhaps out of all his roles, uh, Jesus' priesthood is the most central and most glorious of all his titles. In fact, the whole rest of the book of Hebrews is mainly concerned with Jesus as our great high priest. In fact, it can be argued that Christ's role as a prophet was to reveal him in what he has accomplished for us as a priest. And, and him as a king, the only reason he holds the scepter as a ruling king is in these last days is what he's done for us on the cross as our priest. Or as Revelation puts it, Christ can only come as the conquering lion because of what he's done for us as the suffering lamb. Without in any way taking away from all that Jesus does, Christ as a priest to his people is arguably what Jesus most identifies with and is glorified by. If you look at the end of verse 3, you can see this clearly, where he tells us that after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Christ's main work in coming to us was to make purification for sins. And we know that as we read through the Gospels. But that work was accomplished by Christ in his capacity as our priest, our our intermediary representative. In the Old Testament, there was a specific group of people, the Levites, who were singled out from all other Jews in order to serve the people in the role as priest. These were men who served as representatives, as as an intermediary between sinful men and and the holy God. They would offer up prayers to God on behalf of the people, and, and they would offer sacrifices to God on behalf of the sins of the people. Their life's work was focused on interceding on behalf of a sinful people in order to to maintain a right relationship with this holy and righteous God. And you know what? Their work was never finished. The whole story of the Old Testament was that they kept on making sacrifices and the people kept on sinning and the priests kept on interceding and nothing they did was ever good enough. It was never final enough to fully deal with the people's sin. The animals they offered up and and the work they performed their entire lives in the end was incomplete. Did you know that in the Old Testament temple, the place where these priests would work and offer their daily sacrifices to God, that that there were many different rooms and, and in each one of these rooms there were specific pieces of furniture that the Lord commanded to be placed there in order for them to accomplish their work rightly. There was, of course, the Ark of the Covenant, which was in the Holy of Holies. There was also the altar of incense, uh, the golden lampstand. There was a table of showbread, and, and, and the, there was this bronze altar. But do you know what piece was conspicuously missing? There were no chairs at all in the temple, and it's significant. Do you know Why? Because the work of the priests was never done. It was never finished. Uh, There was always sacrifices to be made because the sacrifices never ultimately did away with sin. They'd only just cover the sin for a little bit. In the Old Testament, the priests were always working and can never, as it were, sit down and rest. But we're told here that, that Jesus Christ has made purification for sins and that he has done so in such a way that he has now sat down at the right hand of God. 
It is significant that when our Lord was on the cross offering his life as an atoning sacrifice for sin, shedding his blood for us, that the last words he offered up on the cross were the words, it is finished. The Son offering up himself to the Father as a purification for sins was the work of intercession that no Old Testament priest could ever do. And because it was the work of the Son of God, it was, as it were, a perfect work, a a once-for-all sacrifice that took away the sins of those whom he died for. And so he sits as our final representative, and he's saying, it is done. I've taken away all their sin. If you kept reading you'd see that the book of Hebrews really just goes on to expound this all-important point. I really wish, if if we had the time, we could just sit here and read through the rest of Hebrews together. That'd be a good use of time. Uh, And I'd encourage you to do that this afternoon. Go home with your families. Take 20 minutes and just read through the rest of Hebrews. And you can see as you do so, because it makes the point so well and and, and shows with such beauty and, and profundity that the high priestly work of Jesus Christ is central. It applies it to every aspect of our Christian lives. His priestly work allows us, as Hebrews will argue, to confidently now approach God in prayer. Jesus making purification for sins allows us to endure in faithfulness because we know that our sins have been fully taken care of. Jesus, as our high priest, constantly intercedes on our behalf to the Father. How encouraging is that? Jesus, as our high priest, leads us as our worship leader as we give glory to God. Jesus, as our high priest, is pastorally concerned with every aspect of our lives. He is a sympathetic high priest who even shows us merciful pity and tender gentleness in our daily struggle with sin. And as is being highlighted even here, Jesus, as our high priest, is making purification for sins and in doing so has made us as a new people for himself who now belong completely to God. Do take notice that the author is equating here in these verses the the creative power of the Son in creating all things, as seen in verse 2, with the recreative power of the Son in creating a people for himself by making purification for sins. Our salvation is the result of God's creative word recreating and making new life in us out of our dead and sinful hearts. And just as the the Son upholds the universe by the word of his power, so too the Son is fully able and capable of upholding and sustaining us in the midst of every trial and suffering and persecution. So then in one sense, what Paul says in Romans 8 is just as true here, that nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Friends, knowing Jesus more and more as our high priest should be the great aim of all who call themselves Christians. And I pray that we may be moved this morning to delight in him because of what he's done for us as our great high priest. Well, we've seen the work of Jesus as prophet, as priest, as king. But at the heart of this text lies something even more essential, more fundamental. And it's this, that Jesus Christ is the fullest expression of God and is himself fully God. And we see that in verse 3, that he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. What lies at the heart of all that Jesus has done and is doing for us is the grand truth that Jesus is God himself. His work is prophet, 
his ruling as king, his work as our great high priest, all these things are subservient to and flow out of who he is. He is God, the gloriously eternal son and and the exact imprint of his nature. And all these roles of Jesus serve to make that known. His work as prophet was to reveal and make known to us our triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit. His work as king is to rule in justice and power over a creation who knows and worships God. And his work as priest was to offer up himself, the God-man, as an atoning sacrifice so as to mediate and reconcile a sinful people with the holy God and to be forever a mediatory witness between God and man. All of these roles serve in such a way to have people know God. And we know God primarily, supremely, through Jesus Christ, the Son, He who is our prophet, our king, and our priest. Notice that He is the radiance of the glory of God. The glory of God is is throughout the Bible described as as the weight and, and the importance of who God is displayed in blinding light. So that all of God's characteristics and his attributes and perfections and and all of his being is shown through the unapproachable luminescence of his glory. When Isaiah, as we read earlier, saw the glory of God, he said he fell down in terror and said that he was a man undone, as if he were disintegrating in the presence of God. When Ezekiel saw a glimpse of God's glory, he described it as a blinding light, which sounded like the force of a thousand waterfalls right near his ears. When Moses asked to see God's glory, God said that he couldn't because if he did, he'd die. But that he'd still let Moses see the after effects of God's glory. And the result of that brief encounter was that Moses returned down the mountain shining, as it were, with the residual effects of seeing God's glory. When God's glory dwelled and and tabernacled with the Jewish people, uh, it was so magnificent and too heavy for the people to see Uh, that God's glory uh, uh, dwelled in the temple, in the midst of the Holy of the Holies, separated and cut off from the rest of the people. They could not see it. When Revelation speaks of God's glory in our midst, it says that there will be neither sun nor moon, for the, the light of God's glory will shine for all to see. And here, Hebrews is telling us that this is who Jesus is. He is the radiance of God's glory. Do you want to see what no person could ever see in the Old Testament? Because if they did, they'd die. Well, you can peer into God's glory by beholding the Son, Jesus Christ. Because this is what Jesus is revealing to us, is God's word spoken to us, the full glory of God. When we see Jesus, we see God fully, and we see his full glory. And we don't die when we see God's glory, because Jesus has made purification for our sins. We won't be turned away because Jesus is our king and he owns us and calls us his own. And so as we see Jesus and we see the radiance of the glory of God, we're drawn into Jesus, as it were. Drawn into him to become one with him. We're drawn into his glory and, and we'll be taken to glory and we'll become glorified in him, enjoying God in all his glory as sons and daughters of God. When on that great day, The great I am, the faithful and the true, the lamb who is for sinners slain is making all things new. Behold, our God shall live with us and be our steadfast light, our glory, and we shall ere his people be 
All glory be to Christ. Friends, what I want us to see this morning is that as we see and and peer into and behold Jesus now and get to know Jesus, that we would become more like Jesus, he who is the exact imprint of God. There is a godliness to our everyday lives. Our our conversation will be new. Uh, How we think and act and live will become more like God. We're being conformed into that image of Jesus, the Son, as we behold him in all that he is. Oh, how glorious it is to know Jesus, he who is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. In faithfully beholding Christ, we can endure, we can persevere because our faith is grounded in and centered on the full revelation of God himself. Knowing Jesus is knowing God. And being known by Jesus is being known and loved by God. Friends, there's so much more we could take out of this passage and apply to ourselves. But as we draw to a close this morning, I just want us to see and to know and to be amazed at Jesus Christ. I want to end with encouraging us this morning to make sure our lives, as Christian lives, our lives which are centered on Jesus Christ. Uh, May we know him continue to see him in all his beauty and glory as our prophet, as our priest, as our king, and as our God. Let's pray and worship him. Heavenly Father, we thank you this morning for what you've revealed to us in your word and what you've revealed to us supremely in and through your son, Jesus Christ. Lord, make us more like Christ as we see him and know him and behold him. May we know him as our prophet as our great high priest, as our Lord and King. And Lord, may we worship him the rest of our days as our great God. In Christ's name we pray.